On the Healthy Human Revolution podcast, Dr. Lori Marbus interviews nutrition and lifestyle medicine experts and extraordinary guests whose informative and inspiring stories will empower you with the knowledge to transform your life and health. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Dr. Lori Marbus, and today I'm very excited to welcome Dr. Bruce Moon. How are you today? I'm fine. A little bit warm here in uh, northern Illinois, but uh, other than that, things are good. Excellent. Yeah, it's a little warm here in Colorado, above the norm for sure. So, well, the reason I have you on the podcast is I just find this so amazing is you are a former art therapist, but with decades and decades of information, written many articles and books, and you're, you're an artist, a musician. There's just I just found it rather intriguing reading about you. So I'm quite excited about this. And, and if anyone who knows my Instagram, I love to do art as well. And I'm just I'm tickled to be here. And thanks again for all your time for joining us today. Um, could you tell us a little bit about just your history and how you came into the field of art therapy? Well, <laughs> this could take the whole time. Um, <laughs> I, you know, when, when I was an adolescent, uh, I was uh, sort of he heading the wrong way in life, I think. Uh, and for me at that point, uh, life revolved around athletics and rock and roll music. And uh, I wasn't paying much attention to school. And a couple things happened. One was uh, I broke my Achilles heel in a gym class and uh, broke it into nine pieces. And that essentially ended my uh, athletic career. Wow. <laughs> my, my serious athletic career anyway. And, uh, and I was, for the first month, I was pretty much uh, bedridden uh, at home because it had also ruptured the tendon. And just in those days, things were not as advanced as they are medically now. And so um, I, was, I was kind of depressed. And I had this friend of mine, uh, Iffy Adams, who was a wonderful painter. He was, he was kind of acknowledged as the best artist in our high school. And at that point, I was one of the better guitar players. So Iffy came over to my house one afternoon and said, I'll make you a deal. If you will teach me to play guitar, I'll teach you to draw. And, and so, we, so he'd come over to the house after school and we'd spend a couple, an hour or so um, learning bar chords and such things. And then he'd teach me how to draw. And along the way with that, he said, you, you really need to take an art class from this art teacher that was in my high school. And I credit that man, our, his name was RJ Cromer. I credit him with in some ways saving my life. Hmm. he was able to take every every other subject in school and relate it to art and somehow he I guess he saw something in me that just kind of turned just twisted it a little bit and I went from being a, a marginal C and D student to uh, the honor roll and eventually a four-point student by my senior year and I decided that I wanted to be R.J. Cromer when I grew up. So I went to undergraduate school for art education and made it all, basically all the way through. This was during the Vietnam War. And um, when it came to student teaching time, R, I should say R.J. Cromer was a real free thinker. I mean, in, in his art class, 
you did whatever you wanted to do and explored what you wanted to explore and he would help you with that. And so when it came to student teaching, uh, my uh, supervising teacher that I was assigned was, as luck would have it, the wife of a, a fighter pilot um, in the Air Force. Hmm. And uh, I was uh, a pretty avid, conscientious objector to the war. And needless to say, she and I didn't exactly hit it off. Um, I mean, <laughs> she wanted everybody to raise their hand to go get a cup of water and, and that kind of stuff. It was just anathema to me in, in terms of what I thought art education was. Hmm. So by the time I got done with that, I went, well, if, A, it's a miracle that she passed me. And B, if this is what art education is these days, I want nothing to do with it. So I was stuck with, okay, now I've done four years of art education. What am I going to do? And I had this uh, friend of mine who was a youth minister in the Methodist church. And he said, why don't you go to seminary? And I I had nothing better to do. (laughs) So, okay, okay, I'll, I'll go to seminary and become a youth minister or a uh, pastoral counselor or something. And along it, at the seminary that I went to was the Methodist Theological School in Ohio. And at that school, at that time, you had to meet with your academic advisor once every two weeks during the first year. Just, and basically, are you sure you're doing the right thing? Do you really want to do this? And uh, as, as luck would have it, my academic advisor was a psychiatrist, uh, Dr. Dick Bumgartner who worked part-time at the seminary and part-time at Harding Psychiatric Hospital in Columbus, Ohio. Mm -hmm. And um, so he'd start every session. He's kind of a little bit manic guy. He said, Brewsters, what the hell are you doing here? And I said, I mean, I I don't know. (laughs) I'm just trying to figure things out. And about, uh, so he'd start every session that way. And about six months in to that first year, he said, Brewsters, I got this guy you got to meet. His name's Don Jones, and he's doing this brand new thing called art therapy at the psychiatric hospital. And I thought, okay, I'll I'll put that in the back of my mind. Later that afternoon, I was working as an adolescent counselor in a a community counseling service in Worthington, Ohio. And my boss came walking down the hallway to my office there with a newspaper article about this guy named Don Jones. And he said, Bruce, I think he should contact him. So, okay, twice in the same day, I can take a hint. So I, so I called fully expecting to be given a secretary and make an appointment for God only knows when, but I got right into, I said, Don Jones, how can I help? And I said, well, so I told him a little bit of my story and he said, well, let's get together for lunch tomorrow. So we got together for lunch and he started telling me stories about uh, his view of how art could help folks who were seriously disturbed. And by the end of that lunch, I was hooked. Mm. And so he said, well, why don't you go start knocking on doors and figure out a way to have your second year of seminary be as my apprentice? Yeah. He was he was also a Methodist minister oh my in, his, in his past. So uh, so I started oh. knocking on doors, and lo and behold, was able to uh, to convince the the seminary that this is really what I need to do. Oh, and wow. they said okay. And so I spent a year as Don Jones' 
apprentice. I mean, I, I followed him everywhere. And, uh, and it so happens that Don was one of the founders of the American Heart Therapy Association and one of the first presidents of the association. And so I got introduced to all of the big names in the field and, uh, and wow. it, uh, never looked back. I mean, I, it just, uh, it was meant to be. Wow. So that was quite an interesting journey, but it always seems like the universe was directing you towards this at different, That's, it got you out of one thing and said, you will pay attention and yeah. this is where you're going. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Oh, very uh, circuitous. Wow. That's really cool. Um, it's fun to look, you know, in the Brat River mirror and see those kind of connections evolve. Um, yeah. That's fantastic. So tell us a little bit about what is art therapy exactly? I mean, I, I think we can make some assumptions, but I, I think there's so many more intricacies to it that, we, that we're not aware of or people who have never heard of it before. Well, there are lots of different flavors, but when, when, when I try to talk about it with people, my, my clinical expertise was with children and adolescents who've been physically or sexually abused. Mm. And although I worked with adults also, but, but really that's where I think my, my heart lies most. And with, with the little kids, they didn't have vocabulary to explain what had happened to them and how they felt about it. And with the adolescents, they were so pissed off. They, they, the last thing they wanted to do was talk to an adult about what had been done to them by another adult. Mm -hmm. But in both cases, they had these feelings inside that were mucking up behavior at school, making family life miserable, and just generally running roughshod over their lives. So the work of art therapy is, is to how to take these things that are inside that, that either are unspeakable or, or won't be spoken of, get them out into visual form and have the therapeutic benefit of somebody else in the world gets it. Mm. There, there's nothing more damaging, well, in my view, there's nothing more damaging to the human psyche than to feel as if you are the only person who ever felt this way and nobody else can possibly understand you. Which, by the way, is sort of the adolescent stance <laughs> in a lot of ways. <laughs> but, but the work, of, of, if you put it out in a visual form and I'm able to, to engage with it poetically or artistically and, and again, convey the notion, I'm with you. I, under, I get it. I understand. And, it's a, and these feelings are you have, you have every right to these feelings. Mm. Um, and that, that's really where the therapeutic benefit comes from. So you're validating them through their expression outside of the verbal right. language. So that means, because I have your book here too, The Introduction of Art Therapy and Faith in the Product. There were so many to choose. Your books, there's many to choose from, but I thought that one oh, was Oh, you see most. Don Jones there on the cover. Is that's, that Don Jones? That's him in the background there, yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay. I was yeah. wondering who that was because it was highlighted in the back too. And I read about Don Jones in here. And so, because um, you speak also in that, um, in your book about kids and or people who have less verbal skills I mean to think about that I mean I know just my own job is you know having patients and as a physician if they don't verbally um, speak you know you have to have a caretaker that is very intuitive to the patient's needs and what they what we can do for them but can you tell me a little bit how do you how do you even get started with anybody much less one that is not willing to convey <laughs> the, yeah. the verbal <laughs> well, component or the expression. I, I, Laura, I think it's, you're, you're right on. The, the world is full of people who can't. Mm. 
or won't talk about what they feel inside, but they still got feelings. Mm-hmm. So I, I mean, the last um, the last place that I did for for about ten years, I did pro bono work at a at an adolescent center for adolescent boys who committed a sexual offense of some kind. Wow! And it was it was not a nice place. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was a, a step above a prison, but not a very big step. And and so these kids were always on guard and always and and as you might guess. The great majority of them were kids who'd been abused themselves, and so, and so they acted out in a way that they knew. So, so kid comes into the studio, and, and I always I always try to be working on something when they come in. So I'm setting up this uh, this kind of art, what I call artistic contagion. Like they walk in the door and they see me engaged in, in doing this kind of thing, and and I and the kid walks in the door and says. Uh, I'm not sure about language in this. F, F you, I don't mm-hmm. want to be here. Right. And, 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 and I said, that's perfect. The whole point of being here is to express yourself. And you just did. Now, how can we take that F you? If, 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 if that F you was a line, what kind of line would it be? Would it be a, a nice, gentle line like this? Or would it be a line like that? Well, duh. It's going mm-hmm. to be a really harsh line. I said, okay, well, I'll tell you what, if we, again, if you think about that feeling, what color comes to mind? Black. All right, let's start off by this painting by covering the entire painting black. We'll just do the whole, this is your background. We're just gonna do the whole thing in black. And, and, and so what's happened then is I've become, the, I, I'm working at becoming this kid's ally. Mm. I'm, I'm not gonna, crack on them for speaking in words that they're not supposed to use and 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 I'm and I'm going to honor that's that's the way you feel okay so it's so it's black and plus now they're going to touch the paint they're going to touch the paint to the canvas they're going to feel how it spreads on the canvas if if they have white gesso showing through all they have to do is go back and paint it some more so they can't lose they, they can't they can't mess it up i mean how can you mess up painting something black so we get this whole background covered in black. And then I say, okay, now back to that line. What, you know, if, if we got this black background, what would be a great color to get into that FU? I don't want to be here. Red. Mm. Okay. All right. Perfect. Let's, let's make the line in red. So, so they do that. And I say, you know what would be really cool now is if we, if we imagine a light shining on the top of that, We'll make make some highlights. So we so they add pink or orange or whatever to to imagine the light coming down on top of this line, and and then maybe burgundy or purple or something on the bottom side where it's shadowed, and invariably then somebody will walk by and goes, "Wow, that looks really angry," and and the kid goes, "Yeah, it's, it is," <laughs> and 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 so so the beauty of this is even though they're expressing something that's really painful or ugly, it feels good to express it mm-hmm. visually. I mean, it's, it's, it's a paradox that I, I may be working, the kid may be working with the ugliest, most hurtful thing in the world, but the expression of it, if it comes out clearly in the, in the visual realm, that feels good to express what's bad. And, and then, again, the, the therapeutic benefit of having me with them on the journey of that. 
and, and validating that that's, it's okay. You have a right to feel this way. Plus, I feel like the process of creation alone is therapeutic. I, that's, I, I mean, I, I find that just uh, really fascinating. So as you work with kids, do you see their art change? Like, what did you see? Was there anything that stood out as you went along? Did they well, find... It, yeah, and also with the other therapy. Uh, you know, they, in the best of instances, their art, their art gets more sophisticated hmm. as they get more adept at expressing what it is that they feel. Just like you don't speak, you don't you don't speak English today the way that you did when you were fifteen. You've become more articulate. <laughs> You've learned how to how to express yourself more clearly. And the same thing is true artistically. The more you do it, the the better you get at it, and the more the more positive feedback you get at get, get from that, the the better it feels to express yourself artistically. So yes, it would it would change, become a little bit more sophisticated. Now with little kids, not so much. I mean, there there are developmental limitations with what they can physically and emotionally do. But even in that, as kids get more comfortable, they get more they get more more used to using the whole page or or to expressing themselves bigger rather than tight little drawings. Mm, that is amazing. So I can't imagine, I think you probably picked the most difficult population to work with. I oh God, I love them though. They're, uh, they're so immediate. I mean, everything yeah. is, the world depends on what's happening right now. And right. there's something about that drama that probably my own adolescence still <laughs> played out. Absolutely. So I, I can see that. So where, as you, I know you've retired and some other things, but, you know, as you saw the field of art therapy evolve, in what context do you feel like that can be useful to the everyday person? Or is, you know, like, how could someone who's not familiar with art therapy, because there's so much, you know, in my own practice, you'll see people who are anxious and depressed and who suffered trauma as children, trauma as adults, how can we engage? Is there somewhere that we can refer patients to, or is there some type of process we could learn about how to work with patients or people can do on their own? How does, well, is there something like that available? It's, it's interesting. You know, when, when I came into the profession in 1974, there, there were 300, about, about 300 of us nationwide oh. uh, as part of the American Art Therapy Association. Today, there are about 10,000. So, so that's been pretty remarkable growth over, over time, but we're still a baby compared to social work or psychology. I mean, a baby in terms of numbers mm -hmm. in, compared to social work or psychology or, or psychiatry. Um, you know, the thing, if people are really interested, I would encourage people to connect with the American Art Therapy Association. Uh, mm -hmm. They've got lots of good informational things on, on their website. What you asked about about um, do-it-yourself sort of things is is a little bit controversial. Mm, um, I gathered that for reading articles. Yes. Yeah, you know, it's like uh, I don't I don't dabble in prescribing medications mm. because I'm not trained in that. Right. And right. and likewise, I think it's. There is an out, you know, the art, the art therapy profession itself these days is a master's level of entry. So there's a whole body of knowledge behind the work that, um, 
Now, having said that, at the same time, we don't own art. I mean, art, art is there for anybody and it can be uh, therapeutic for anybody. But if, if somebody really wants to do therapy based on the art, then I think it's important to connect right. with people who have that discipline. Absolutely. So, so to look for someone who is an art therapist, so they should look for someone who belongs to the association or is there any credentialing that someone should be looking for? Because I imagine there can be some that claim to be, you know, certified art therapists and we really want someone who's going to connect with people and help them. So where, how would we know who that would be? Well, there are, there are two, well, there are several levels of credentialing The the, the, the first key one is to be a, a registered art therapist, ATR, uh, with the American Art Therapy Association. Be beyond that, there's a level of expertise and passing a certification exam that allows one to be a board certified oh. registered art therapist. And then many states, um, Colorado being one, uh, where uh, of course, one needs a license to practice, and uh, there are some states that license art therapists directly, and there are many states where art therapists get licensed through the professional counselor licensure. Oh, wow. Okay, very so good. So all those things are important. Yeah, I mean, you want you buyer beware. I mean, you want, you yeah. want to, every now and then I see, I, I won't mention names, I see things online, and I just go, oh, my goodness, <laughs> mm -hmm. of, of people who are uh, proposing, proponing to presenting themselves as if they are art therapists or have some kind of knowledge, and that uh, scares me. But yeah, medicine's not immune to people representing themselves inappropriately. Yeah, <laughs> you, you said it much nicer than I did. Thank you. <laughs> well, politically correct these days. So, as yeah. um, so. That's great. I love hearing that story of the young man. Was there any other stories that kind of stand out to you over the, the decades that you worked with people that, you know, just so that we could kind of learn to resonate with or? Oh, there, I, boy, boy so there, are, there are so many. We, we could be here till uh, 10 o'clock tonight. <laughs> doing this. Um, you know, I, I, there was, and I've talked about adolescence. Let me talk about it. A geriatric person that I worked with her. Her name, I'll call her Lenore, and she had came into the psychiatric hospital terribly depressed. Um, in the last year of her life prior to coming into the hospital, she had lost her husband, and three of her closest friends had passed away. And she found her, and her her children were had had all moved to other states, so she was really a, a lonely and hurt woman, uh, and. Um, she would come into the studio and, and often would say, oh, I, I don't want to do anything. I'll, I'll just watch. And so, so I keep prodding and trying to find different ways to engage with her. And, and then one day, you know, sometimes you just have to get out of the way. One, one day she picked up this ball of clay and just started touching it and, and working with it. And she ended up uh, over the course of two days forming the, this open shell like uh, piece of about about that big and in the middle of it put had this um, just round sphere and I said oh god Lenore that looks so much like an oyster 
And she said, what? I said, right, you know, the, you know the story how oysters get made? No. Well, you see, an oyster gets a piece, a piece of sand caught in their soft inner tissue and it hurts. And so they squirt it with this creative juice they have and for a while it feels better, but then that gets hard and it hurts again. So they squirt it again. And they keep doing this over and over and over again until we're left with a pearl. Hmm. And so you see what was beautiful, what was, what was really hurtful and ugly becomes something beautiful. And she looked at me and said, is that the truth? <laughs> and I said, well, I don't know, but I, but I believe it's a great metaphor. And she went, that's what this is. So, I mean, that, I mean, again, there are so many stories like that. Again, of people who, I mean, the, the key thing is that folks who, who really couldn't or wouldn't talk about what their inner experience was, but still had all these images inside. And, you know, truly, if you think about it, but particularly with people with trauma, I mean, I, again, I've worked with uh, veterans and a number of veterans who have severe trauma. And, and when, when somebody is experiencing a, a horrific experience, the part of the, we know now that the part of the brain that records in words shuts down, hmm. but, the, but images just keep on coming, just keep on coming. So if you're, gonna, if you're going to really reach the, the depths of trauma, I think you've, you've got to work at least first with the images. Hmm. Of that trauma in, in a in a safe way, and then then maybe words come later. I, I worked with a, a, a man named uh, well, I, I won't tell you what his name is. That he, he came into the hospital and was electively mute, and had had been a a Vietnam uh, veteran and had been homeless for years, and somehow ended up coming into the to, into the hospital. And we worked side by side in the studio for, I, I want to, maybe six weeks without him saying a word. Just he'd come in, get, get to work. We, I'd paint beside him. He'd do whatever he was doing. And, and finally, after, again, after about six weeks, he turned to me and he said, my name's Dave. He's like, <laughs> you know, I, I didn't know you could talk. <laughs> wow. And, wow. But it's the, it, it, it's the providing a safe environment where people can be and do what they need to do without the intense pressure to somehow put it into words, which then constricts it or. Mm. Um, puts it in a box. Sort of. Yeah, puts it in a box. Mm. That's incredible. So as you're going through, I want to know what's going in your mind as you're sitting and either listening to people or watching their work, what is going through your mind? Are you formulating like, what's the next step? What could it mean? You're asking, like, how, how does a therapist start thinking in this process? Because I'm sure because everything must be such a surprise because creation can be so broad. Yeah. You know, I, um, there was, there was a time in my career where I tried to think in terms of strategy. Mm. And, and the longer I was in the work, the more and more I let go of that and tried to really just focus on be here, be with this person. That 
and to trust that um, it, something Don Jones always said, but the art never lies. Mm. And it, that, that if I could just be with it and and look at look at it, think about it, and try to and try to respond artistically myself or poetically about it, rather than get I, I never uh, something in in the field controversy in the field from years ago was should we interpret images or not, mm. and and I I guess I always took the stance as you know what the only interpretation that makes any sense is what is what the client says this is about, mm-hmm. and my fantasy about what it might be about, but that's mm-hmm. not going to help them. But what what right. they say, or, and, and so so the work was really about radically trying to be with. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I was doing my doctorate, uh, I got a chance to work with Clark from Stockus. I don't, I don't know if you know that name, but he, he, yeah. was, uh, he was one of those guys who was a psychiatrist in the days of Fritz Perls and mm-hmm. Moreno. And uh, uh, he knew Frankel, Victor Frankel, oh, and, wow. and, all those, and all those, oh, wow. guys, and all those kind amazing. of uh, the mountain, uh-huh. Mount Rushmore of, uh, of, wow. of, of therapy, and 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 Clark, when I when I worked with him, he was probably in, in his or maybe in his early eighties. He was certainly well up there, and and he just would always say the most important thing you can do is learn to be with. Mm-hmm. So so I worked hard at learning how to be with, trying to be with. Well, I tell you, I think that's a lesson every single human being needs to learn. Be present and mindful where you are. And I think, you know, like our gadgets are really getting into the way of that these days, for sure, which I don't think anyone would argue with. Yeah, so our, our gadgets and our politics. I mean, it's, oh. it's really hard to just be really listen to somebody, even when they're saying something that you don't like. Exactly, because you've already created the judgment that it's not worthy of your time, and so or your thoughts or appreciation or openness. It's a, it is really quite a tragedy for sure, hundred percent. But as you're walking through all of these journeys with these patients and clients, how does this change you as a person? Does it change your art? Because I know you do music. So, tell me, like what do you as a person, what is different about you? Just like I'm different, like you mentioned my speech from 15. I would say so. What was, what's different about you now? You know, I I was really lucky on that. My first day as Don Jones apprentice was September 16th, 1974. And on that day, I I walked in and he said, do you have a sketchbook with you? Uh. And and in my in my naivete, I thought he'd want me to have write down my 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 wonderful clinical observations, you know, or whatever. And and I said something to that effect to him, and he said, "No, I want you to write poetry and do drawings about what you experience with these people." Oh. So so on that very first day, the the tone was set for me about don't don't overthink this. Be an artist and respond artistically, and. You know, one of the in 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 our field and in, in all mental health fields, I suppose that people talk about burnout and uh, being vicarious traumatization and stuff. And honest to goodness, I I just never experienced that. 
And it was because I, I always used the experiences of being with clients as the source for my own painting, for my own poetry, for my own uh, songwriting and performing. And, and, and so, so it's like, it, 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 is, it is an incredible thing to sit across the table from a young, say a 14 year old girl who's been sexually abused. And has images about that that she's working with. It, it's, it can be incredibly painful, but you can't. I, I couldn't just let just keep taking that in without without doing something with it myself. So it so those experiences became the source of my own artwork in whatever whatever media or mode I was working in at a time. And 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 so I never. I never came close to feeling burned out. It was always energizing in, in, in a weird sort of way. Of, of, mm. of, I, I felt like clients used to be patients, now and clients were giving me gifts of their honesty and their pain and their suffering. And it was my job to then honor that and to give it back to the world in a different form. Mm. I think that's wonderful. One of my favorite things is my sketchbook. <laughs> I have several of them. Um, I think also too, because, you know, I have three grown kids, one's a physician as well. And I'm, and there was a, a quote, I can't remember off the top of my head, but it's a, it was a basically that a life, you know, we all live these lives and we just want to have them kind of remembered in a sense. But I think what a wonderful way to do that is to share it in sketches and poetry and, you know, just sharing that type of and they don't have to even be good. They just, in the sense of, you know, putting on a gallery wall, but these are meaningful to you and the people who know you and love you. So I think I just enjoy it so much. It really helps me just process the day too. It's like, it download. Because, you know, as, as a therapist, um, you will understand too, just from, as a physician, <clears throat> I'm a family physician at that, we're kind of on the the front end of um, yeah. care and so we get told a lot of things and they didn't prepare us for that in medical school yeah. you know the sense of oh by the way you're gonna have to be a therapist in many many cases <laughs> i'm just glad i had a little life before i <laughs> was a doctor but um but i think that's so important and there's so many physicians who are dealing with burnout we have the highest rate of um, suicide of any profession and it's um yeah. it's really disturbing to see such wonderful souls just, you know, just at the wit's end, but they're, but I think a lot of them were never taught the outlet, like the creative element of your, of your profession gives you that, those tools to do that. Whereas, you know, as a physician, it's very much like the military. It's very restrictive, very, well, it's getting a little better, but not a whole lot, <laughs> very, you know, patriarchal and rules and you're the tough and stoic and you will deal with it. And, um, we're humans. We're just, we just can't do that consistently. Right. And so I think that's, that would be, it should be an art therapist with every medical school <laughs> just for our, our physicians or medical students. Was one, just, of, one of the things I used to love at the, at Harding Psychiatric Hospital in Columbus, where I, I was there for 22 years yeah. and we would, and was a teaching hospital. So there would be psychiatrists and psychologists and social workers and, and art therapists all the time coming through and we'd always do these trainings in it, and and it was the the thing that I loved was when when somebody would say, you know what, what you do reminds me that that's a human being connected to the 
diagnosis. And, and I think particularly in psychiatry, we can, get, we can get caught up in the omnipotence of if I can diagnose it, then I can cure it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but you know what, unless you touch the person, I'm not sure the medication's gonna help all that much. Mm-hmm. Just my two cents. No, I think that's exactly right, because especially as you go further into the specializations, you know, so family medicine is the basic internal medicine, OBGYN, but as you go into further specialization, you think of them as an eye or as they're a diabetic. And I think one of the things that I've learned over plus 20 plus years being a doctor is just walking patients through that you're not your disease, you are you who happens to have (laughs) or happens to this. And I think they feel like a relief that they don't, you know, that they're not burdened by this is me now. It's like, no, not at all. And what I other do is I do lifestyle medicine, which is helping people find healthy ways of reversing or improving dramatically their chronic state of health, illness, like diabetes, hypertension, arthritis, headache, all of that. And that honestly has been the most rewarding um, is just helping people truly heal. And you create such a new, unique connections with people when you're they see you as guiding them, kind of like yourself, just helping them make better decisions, but you're just helping them express themselves um, in a way that they don't feel vulnerable. It's less vulnerable, I guess, but, or safe, I guess is the word, but that's really cool. Wow. So as far as um, your music, I do, I do want to say, because you have a really cool um, YouTube page, and when I was playing it, my son, my, my middle one, Jonathan, he's 25, he just, launch his own tea company so he's at home because he's like it's cheaper mom <laughs> like whatever I enjoy having him around and he's like he goes wow that sounds really good I was like I know that's who I'm interviewing he's like whoa so there's quite you're quite talented and I just would love to hear a little bit about I know it started with that broken foot and <laughs> Achilles injury where is that taking you and I know you've done quite a bit of shows and some other things where can people connect with that yeah well the, when I when I retired from uh, Mount Mary University and in, in, from academia in art therapy, I thought, well, okay, I'm gonna just, I've always, I've always been a performer and always been a songwriter, but had not, it was always on this, the side burner, maybe not the back burner, but the side burner at least. And, uh, and so this freed me up to, uh, to really invest the time and energy and, and, <laughs> And lo and behold, what I have found is that that I'm I'm using my own art at this point in songwriting and performing to to build community, to form meaningful relationships with this cadre of other musicians that I've kind of come across. We we I tell you this real quick little story. One night I I know I play in I play in dive bars and restaurants and every now and then do some college gigs were which were a lot are a lot of fun but I was in this bar in Libertyville Illinois and uh, and I sang I, I you know there the places I played they're used to having cover bands mm. and, oh, and I, okay I'm, I'm not very interested in that and I don't want to do that so I'm so I'm playing my own music and I and I've and I played this song about about David the Vietnam veteran that I told you mm. about uh, earlier and and I and I finished the song, and this guy who who has since become my lead guitar player, who is 
you know, six foot four, 270 oh, wow. pound tattooed Harley riding Vietnam veteran himself came, <laughs> up me, came up to me with tears just running down his face at the end of the song. And the, the closing line of the song was, my name is David, my name is David. And, and at the end of the bar, three guys got off their bar stools and stood up and saluted. And all of a sudden, something very different is happening in that, in that bar. Mm. And people were talking about why that hit them in that way. And I went, you know what? I'm doing the same thing I've always been doing, just with a different media. And, and since that time, I really, we, I've been part of this community of, there are maybe 20 now musicians who were together at least two nights a week in various and sundry places playing and, uh, and, and it's community and it's important relationships and meaningful relationships. And uh, I, 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 I tell people, you know, at this point in my life, I want my life to be one long art piece. Mm. and and that's what i'm striving for and then actually this weekend on uh, friday i fly to syracuse new york to uh, present to do a concert i have written about uh, clients and called notes from the studio uh, oh, wow. for the art therapy program at syracuse oh wow that is so cool i wish i was in new york if you ever come to colorado please let me know welcome well, get naropa to invite me out again that's the i've been to naropa several times over the years. oh really yeah. okay awesome well there's lots of places that would be open what you do your continuous art project yeah. with open arms for well, sure I'll, I'll go any place that people will listen <laughs> yes absolutely fantastic i just my, my mind just goes like when I when I get to connect with people like I uh, I read a book called how to make a plant love you <laughs> and it was written by this uh, young woman who's a model no less absolutely drop dead gorgeous her name is summer rain oaks in New York, but she studied uh, it wasn't botany but it was. Um, ecology and things in college and she in her little tiny Manhattan apartment, I think she had last time I heard 1500 plants. Oh, and all of these things but as she was talking she wrote a book and i'm thinking you know i kind of just came across her instagram and found it really intriguing because i love plants as you can kind of tell back here but uh and uh what was interesting though she would in her book besides giving you like how to water a plant and how to create whatever she would say all these people that would write into her saying how she, they were depressed and how they were anxious and then caring for something that didn't yes. you know judge them that was always present that required them to get out of bed to care for them they developed this a relationship with these living beings you know these these leaves and these flowers were calling them to come and care for them and brought them into the natural world and she just wrote these really cool things and she happened to mention this horticultural therapist i'm like there's a thing called horticultural therapy. Yes. Have, I ever been, have I been living under a rock? <laughs> like I thought <laughs> I should have known this. <laughs> and I'm just like, oh my goodness, this is like, you know, my daughter, she's a family medicine resident in Boston. I'm like, I'm telling her all this, like, Em, you got to use all these tools. There's so many cool things. She's like, mom, you are over top. <laughs> but I just think what a wonderful tool. And so I found him, I hunted him down and interviewed him. It was such a fun thing to talk about and 
how people would, you know, using the dirt and stroke victims and all the things they did. I was like, oh my goodness. Like, I, I just find it so fascinating to use these other elements in nature and creative components. And I'm just so intrigued. Well, you know, it's no accident. The old truism, actions speak louder than words. Mm. And, and uh, I, I'm really glad you said that about the horticulture. The, again, Harding Psychiatric Hospital, where I, where I worked for 22 years, um, we had horticulture therapists, drama therapists, poetry therapists, occupational therapists, general activity therapists, people who did work therapy. And we, we had, I used to participate in a group called log sawing, which log. was log, which is exactly what it sounded like. We used old two-man cross-cut saws to cut yeah. these big old huge stumps of hickory that came down from wow. the hospital forest. And you can't imagine, you could take an angry kid out there and say, hey, you know, I don't care how you feel, we got work to do. And, and just... <sighs> Wow. Well, and, and then and then the incredible moment when it falls apart oh. and, the, and 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 the two of you have done that together. I mean, it, it, there's just incredible wow. stuff about about all those different modes, different modes of expression, modes of being with other people. Mm. Uh, we had a really talented guy who was an automotive therapist. And he just worked on old cars in the, in the garage and kids would come in or people would come in and learn how to change oil, and learn how to work on the brakes, you know, that kind of stuff that that mastery of doing rather than all the time talking. Right. And, no. and, and at the same time, you're building a relationship. I mean, you think yeah. about it, little kids well you've you've had children so you so, so you remember teaching them how to tie their shoes oh my goodness yes. and that moment when they go oh, i got it and and that that kind of connection between you and this child as they're mastering something in the world mm. I, there i think there's a metaphoric thing there for all of us that that is about relationships come from what we do together not necessarily from what we say to them right I think I could talk to you every day. This is great. You're good. <laughs> Thank you for calling. You know, it reminds me of a story. So I, I have three really bright kids. Um, they're 27, 25, and 23. But Jonathan was born with, um, I was, I developed hypothyroidism when I was pregnant with him. And he ended up being born hypothyroid. And then he had, <clears throat> two weeks later, it was normal. But he developed, my other two you know, Emily was doing your name by two. I mean, this kid, I'm like, oh, parenting is easy. Then I had Jonathan and I was like, he's, you could talk to him. He's fine. He's bright, but he couldn't learn his alphabet and he really struggled and he ended up having really severe dyslexia. And, you know, I spent a lot of time, I started medical school when they were five, three and 10 months old. So I became a very good at time management and looking at things to almost problems over, you know, your mom, that's what you do. You just... <laughs> Um, but what was interesting though, the traditional, you know, A, B, C, and I was, you know, talking to speech therapists and I occasionally was like, what is wrong with him? We didn't have a diagnosis till he was in kindergarten. He had been through preschool where they did the ABCs by Christmas of his kindergarten year. And we had held him back a year. Um, he only knew four letters. Well, someone mentioned to me, cause I was in medical school. So of course I had resources at my fingertips that most parents don't, thank goodness. 
And I said, what, you know, I'm talking to everybody who could possibly help. And they're like, you know, it sounds like dyslexia. Maybe you should look into that. And I was like, I just need a name of something. They don't know how to treat it. Um, and I read a book called The Gift of Dyslexia. And I'll tell you, that book had many, many things. But one of it was what is like reading about Jonathan. But the other thing was they used, he used tactile learning. So they used clay to help kids learn with dyslexia how to create the letters. And we learned 16 letters in two weeks over Christmas break. And it was such a, it really shifted my mind and looking, thinking outside the box when it comes to that relationship. But you know, Jonathan and I are very, very close now because as he continued to grow and evolve, and you know, just mastered reading and went on to do very successful and finished college and all that good stuff. But it, you're exactly right. It's that relationship, but it's also the creation. There's just so many amazing, cool things to come with that. I just, I, the gift of dyslexia that was like come like the gift of art. I just truly believe that's the case. Actually, a patient drew this one for me, painted. Mm. It's a watermelon and blueberry and strawberry. Because yeah. um, I'm, I, I'm, I only eat a plant-based diet, and I use a lot of, you know, vegetables with patients. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's just, uh, it's, um, that's amazing. So I really want to thank you for being a, well, you and your generation just really, you know, working with patients and I'm sure you've saved a lot of lives. Well, yeah, thank you. Well, that's very kind of you to say. <laughs> Unfortunately, I think that that's so much of that, um, that knowledge is, is sort of being lost. And, mm. and it's because of uh, managed healthcare. I mean, the, when, I, when I started at Harding Hospital, the average length of stay was a little bit over 190 days. Wow. The, the day that I left Harding Hospital in August of, of uh, 1996, the average length of stay was six days. Oh my goodness! Wow. And, and that, that was—that's all the effect of, of managed care, and uh, it, to, to me, it's terribly sad. And and that, so so now I I get calls every now and then. Would I consult with somebody because they they've heard this thing about activity therapy? It's mm -hmm. like, oh come on, we were yeah. doing this forty years ago, and right. um, so in, in places are reinventing the wheel and. Uh, Hmm. but it is what it is I guess that's the is is there places I'm assuming that have outpatient um art therapists and you know maybe a community well, outreach yeah I mean having said that kind of morose thing about uh about length of stay uh, when managed care came in in the uh, mid-90s there was a lot of uh, worry that the sky was falling and somehow professions like ours would be squeezed out. And in fact, what happened is that it just it squeezed us out into other venues. So, so today there are therapists working in hospice care. There are therapists in prisons. There are therapists in public school systems. There are therapists in geriatric centers. There are therapists doing private practice. So, so there, again, when I came into the field, 90% of us were in psychiatric, either private or state-run psychiatric institutions. Today, if anywhere where human well-being is the focus, there's an art therapist someplace doing that. Oh, wow. So in a sense, it's, it's almost like a silver lining to the thundercloud. It's the bright <laughs> side of that cloud. 
you know, because uh, we had started um, a telehealth company, um, my uh, business partner and I, right at the onset of COVID, unbeknownst to us, you know, we're thinking, because it's all about helping people find healthier habits to, like I said, get healthier. And it's been very successful, but we had the bright silver lining of COVID was that I had doctors who wanted to partake and then patients were not afraid of telemedicine anymore because right. of this devastating pandemic. Um, so that was, you know, I just find it, I, I believe God put it in our path. Um, we just, you know, with whining and I, I don't believe in coincidence. I think there's true meaning for everything. <laughs> so. I, I, yeah, I still wish there were places, safe places for people to be for longer term stays. I mean, yeah. Granted, we we they, we managed to close down state hospitals, and some of them probably needed to be closed down. But right. we created a whole generation of the homeless and mm. people who are without services. So, yeah, I mean, and you know, it's uh, as a vet myself. You know, I spent four years in the Air Force and deployed overseas, and you know, heard and saw things that I don't want to. I mean, I, and I didn't even, wasn't even a place that was like, you know, really scary, but I certainly took care of patients and was briefly in places I saw stuff, but you know, um, if the military, the federal government can't even take care of our vets, you know, there's homeless vets. I mean, what hope is there for the private citizen who has some mental health issues, who's struggling with the high insurance deductible. And so I am, you know, and I'm tend to be very conservative financially, but I am all about having at least a basic social medicine security for patients elite you know mental health especially because it's such a severe problem in our country um and it's so under under treated um it's it's a big big problem there's just there's so much we could do to improve our medical system it's, i could speak for hours about that yeah I'd, uh, I'd, uh, i'm very impressed by simone briles and uh, naomi osaka the, the, mm athletes who have come out and said i can't yep. do this anymore they're too much yep. uh, there are other other things that are more important in my life than yep. uh, dealing with all this stress so. absolutely i um 100 and I, what's really hopeful is the reception you know of course there were all the people who gave some mobiles the issues and like she's representing her he's like no actually she's representing herself she just happens to be representing america but she's the one that's carrying that torch and we should support her in whatever way we can um but yeah i mean those those young women they are incredible absolutely so well amazing so first of all um thank you again i know i'm coming up on the hour so i don't want to keep you for an hour <laughs> um but uh could you give us an idea of where we can listen to you i know you have the, the syracuse new york thing coming up this weekend and um We'll be posting this on Monday. Where should we find you on, is it YouTube or do you have other, I know you've, I've read about an albums and things. I know you have plenty of books. Yeah. Um, well, there, there are 12 books if you don't count second and third editions, but uh, yes, I have a YouTube channel. Uh, you can just go on YouTube and type in Bruce L. Moon and you'll take you there and you can waste an afternoon <laughs> listening. <laughs> Uh, I have a website, but I can't tell you the address of it off the top of my head. So. Well, I will find it and we will put it in the show notes as well. So this will go out to everybody. And um, I'm super excited for the reception. I, I love getting the comments that people leave on our YouTube channel. Um, it's called Healthy Human Revolution, everyone. Don't forget to 
and you'll see the the links in the show notes and uh, we're super excited to I, I'm hoping this will spark some who knows maybe there's some future art therapists that are listening somewhere so really appreciate everything um, in your time I will call you Bruce but Dr. Moon as well <laughs> thank you, you for your time it was a pleasure it was a pleasure Dr. Laura <laughs> Thank you very much, everyone, for listening. Thanks for watching, and I hope you enjoyed that video. Before you go, though, please hit the subscribe button and the alert button so you will be notified whenever we upload any new videos. On Monday, we upload the Healthy Human Revolution podcast. Now, if you'd rather listen to the podcast, you can find it on all the major platforms, such as iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, and even Spotify. On Tuesdays, we upload The Doctors In. This is where I answer your questions. Thinking of that, could you please comment below any questions you might have about health or wellness or any topics that you would like me to cover? Now, if you're looking for more resources on how to start a plant-based diet, sustain a plant-based diet, exercise, recipes, anything regarding wellness, we've got you covered. Check out HealthyHumanRevolution.com. And again, thanks for watching.